great to be able to worship together, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. As you saw, we have a new series that we're starting this week. It will take us through this season of Lent and help us prepare to celebrate the resurrection on Easter morning. So Lent is a really great time for us to kind of step back a little bit, slow some things down, and just focus on seeking God's face. Many of you participated in our Ash Wednesday service this last week. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to go check it out online. There's some really good content in there that we're going to continue to kind of reference throughout this entire series. So Lent is one of these times where we want to try and create some space in our lives. And so we're inviting the church to every Wednesday between now and Easter to participate in a sunup to sundown fast. And fasting is an important church discipline because it gives us that space that we need to take our eyes off the gifts that God gives us so we can focus on the giver, God himself. And so just encourage you to do that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come together to the sanctuary on Wednesdays to break the fast together with communion. We're going to have an open sanctuary between 5.30 and 7. No formal service or anything like that. You come and go as you like. You can grab one of our Lenten um, booklets, and that will guide you through a little series of meditations. So come on in, find your favorite pew, a place where you feel at home, and you can go through those prayers and meditations together by yourself, with your family, however you want to do that. And when you're done, you come forward. There'll be open communion throughout the entire hour and a half time frame. We'd invite you to receive communion to break the fast. And then go to the back. We have elders will be across several different rooms. And it's an opportunity for you to bring your prayers before the Lord alongside some of our elders as well. And then if you came on Ash Wednesday, you saw that the crosses out front actually have names of our child care and our preschool kids stapled on the back of it. And we'd invite you to stand on the porch, take a little time and pray for those kids. What a tremendous opportunity we have to speak into the lives of so many kids every single day here at Four Miles. We want to be praying for those kids. And again, to bring everybody together this opportunity to abide in God's presence. And some of you might be saying, you know, I'm pretty busy. I don't know if I can fit that in on a Wednesday. You can't be too busy for this. We all need it, especially with all this going on in our world. You turn on the TV, you got inflation, you got everything going on in Ukraine. Um, you know, we're just working our way through the, the backside of a pandemic here. This is a time for us to come together as a church and really focus on the things God wants us to focus on. And of course, if you can't join us in person, um, we'll all have a Zoom call at 6 o'clock every Wednesday, and one of us will be there to lead you through communion. If you need communion elements and you can't make it this Wednesday, grab some on your way out. Um, We can also mail them to you or have a deacon drop them by your house too. And you can request that by simply going to our website and clicking on that little button there that says Request Communion Elements, and we'll make sure they they get to you. It's just really important, we think, this time of year to really be moving forward and walking in step with the Lord as we seek His face throughout the Lenten season. So this six-week mini-series is on Psalm 51. It's a famous psalm of repentance from King David. Now, I know David is a familiar individual in our lives if we've studied Scripture at all, but I think it's important to just start out with a brief biography of who King David was that led to this prayer of repentance. And if you think back to Israel, once they got into the Promised Land, Um, God allowed them to be ruled by a series of judges, but Israel kept asking for a king. And so finally, God relents, and through the prophet Samuel, anoints Saul as the first king. And Saul's an interesting king, but he's not overly obedient. So God reaches back out to Samuel, and he says, I want you to anoint another person to be Saul's successor. And it's going to come from the family of Jesse. Jesse's got eight boys. 
David's the youngest of those eight boys. And Samuel anoints David at a very young age to be Saul's successor. David's an interesting character. He's full of courage. He's described as tending the flock of the family. So he's a shepherd of sorts. But he's courageous because he takes out lions and bears at a very young age. And of course, we all know the famous story of how David knocks down Goliath. The Philistine armies are standing right across from the Israel armies, and this giant beast Goliath is standing there, threatening the armies of God. Nobody will stand up to him. David can't take it. He can't stand to listen to someone defame the Lord and the Lord's army. So he grabs his rock, his slingshot, and he takes him out. That's the kind of guy David was. God says that David was a man after his own heart. And of course, as David continued to mature, he became very victorious in battle, and his reputation grew. So much so that it really irritated Saul. Saul started to get really jealous of him. He tried to take David out on multiple occasions. And David had a couple of chances to take Saul out too, and you think he might do that because he clearly felt threatened. But David didn't do that because he wanted to assume the kingship on God's appointed time. Well, eventually, Saul is in a battle and he's wounded, and rather than surrender to the enemy, he falls on his sword, and Saul's kingship is over. And then David becomes king, and Israel just prospers. They conquer all of their enemies. David is very wealthy, he has many wives. He's in his mid-40s or so, and we see in Scripture that one spring, when the armies go off to war, the kings go with them and they lead it, David decided to stay home. He's going to sit this one out. He assigned Joab, one of his commanders, to command the armies of Israel. Not quite sure why. There's a lot of conjectures why he might have done that. But probably the most reasonable argument is because when we start having success and wealth, we begin to become complacent, don't we? So David's complacency, for whatever reason, caused him to be idle one afternoon. And he catches, his eye catches this beautiful woman who's bathing. And he's so attracted to her that he asks one of his people, who is that? And they said, well, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was one of his trusted lieutenants. So David is obviously thinking about her a lot. Well, he eventually sends for her spend some time with her that he probably shouldn't have, and she becomes pregnant. And now he's got a real situation to handle. He's got to figure out, how do I deal with this? So he begins to devise this plan of deception. And so he calls Joab and says, send Uriah back. I need a report from the front lines. And so Uriah comes back, he gives his report, but that's not really why David wanted him back. David wanted him to go spend time with his wife Bathsheba so people would think that that baby was from Uriah, not from David. But Uriah was a true soldier. There was no way he was going to spend the night in the comfort of his home when the Ark of the Covenant and his men were facing enemies, enemies of Israel. So what does he do? Instead, he stays with David's guards and servants that night. So David finds out about this. He's clearly annoyed, so now he brings him to dinner again, and he tries to get him drunk. But again, Uriah's a true soldier. He's a noble man, and he won't go spend time with Bathsheba. So now what's David going to do? The deception continues to spiral on a hand. So he writes this note, this order, gives it to Uriah. says, take this to Joab. 
Joab reads the order and it says, send your right to the front lines, to the thickest part of the battle, and then withdraw the forces. And clearly what's going to happen, Uriah is going to meet his demise. And when word gets back to David that Uriah is dead, what else can he do? It's one of his trusted lieutenants. He's going to go ahead and grab his wife and make him one of his own so he can care for him, a noble thing to do. And then Bathsheba gives birth to his son, not Uriah's son. So David has now committed adultery, murder, and an egregious abuse of his office as the king of Israel. Scripture says a period of time had passed, and David didn't do or say anything about these horrendous sins. Nobody called him out either, because that was risky. That's just the kind of thing that kings did back in the day. Stuff like that was just business as usual. If you were a king of Moab, Babylon, Edom, or Egypt, it had become more or less acceptable. And sin is like that. If you look at our culture today, sexual sins have just become acceptable. Even very nuanced sins, like the sin of pride. It's almost impossible to watch an NFL football game. Every time somebody tackles someone, there's this massive celebration, and it's become acceptable. But it's really inflaming the sin of pride. On the surface, it looked like David had gotten away with it. But his sin clearly displeased God. And in God's time, he sends Nathan the prophet to speak with David. And David knew Nathan well. Nathan was his prophet, so to speak. God often gave direction to David through the prophet Nathan. And so they get together, and Nathan begins with a story. He says, there's two men. One man is rich. He is wealthy beyond compare. He's got flocks and flocks of sheep. The other man is poor. He only has one lamb. And that lamb has been his since that lamb was born. It's part of his family. Scripture even says he treated it like one of his own daughters. And one day a traveler comes through the area, and the rich man wants to care for his needs. So he takes the poor man's only lamb, and he prepares it for the traveler. And as Nathan is describing this story, David is incensed, and he declares, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan very coolly responds, you are that man. Now this is pretty risky for Nathan to do. Because David essentially had three choices. Kings back then were above reproach. You just didn't call them out. His first option would have been to deny the charges that Nathan just made and send him out of his court, never to speak to him again. The second option was to just raise his scepter and point it at Nathan. And David's court would have just taken Nathan out, no questions asked. But David chose the third option. He confessed openly, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He had committed adultery and murder, both of which were punishable by death under the law, and David knew it. Nathan continues to deliver his message from God by informing David, and this is really important, that the Lord had put away his sin so he wouldn't die. But as is the case with all sin, there'd be severe consequences. First, the son born to Bathsheba would die. Second, David's many wives 
would have all kinds of affairs and they would all be very public affairs, embarrassing David. Third, the sword that was put to Uriah would never leave his house. His children would be an absolute mess. Their lives would be full of struggle, conflict, and strife. And it's within this context that David prays and pens this repentant prayer found in Psalm 51. And I know some of you were a little nervous. You saw how long that was when Kevin read it. Don't worry, we're not going to unpack the whole thing. Just the two verses today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now we're going to work backwards through these two verses because it's helpful to begin with the object of repentance. And David uses three distinct words to describe it. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And each of them give us important insights into this concept. First, the word transgressions. It connotes rebellion, revolt, as in a defection, betrayal, as in treason, a willful, self-assertive defiance of God, stepping over the boundary between right and wrong that God had established. The word captures well the premeditative, diabolical nature of David's sin in this situation. Think about it. He even had Uriah carry his own death sentence to Joab. What a betrayal. Uriah was a loyal soldier. The second word, iniquity, it describes a twisting or bending of the truth that produces guilt. Guilt's an important thing for us to wrestle with. And iniquity is altogether wrong. It can't be excused or condoned. And we go back and read Psalm 32, a different psalm. It is clear that during the time before Nathan had called David out, David had actually experienced an immense amount of guilt. Because David writes in Psalm 32, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And we've all experienced that dreadful feeling of guilt, that pit in our stomach when we've done something so foul, so profane, that it weighs heavy on our souls. It paralyzes us and it steals our peace. And then the third word, sin, which means to miss the mark of truth, requires both punishment and sacrifice to atone for it. This is the word used most frequently in Scripture to describe what separates us from God. During the Sermon on the Mount, we use this graphic to show how sin takes us further and further away from the straight edge of truth. And you recall, these were the four steps that we learn from Scripture that leads us from temptation into sin. And note how, once again, they perfectly apply to this situation with David. As, begin, as sin begins so often, it's by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. David should have been with his men. Instead, he's hanging out one afternoon. His eyes are attracted to a beautiful woman who is bathing. And he clearly did the follow-up, that second look, which is the slippery slope that we learned about when Jesus taught us about lust back in the fall. How when we take that second look, our imagination 
begins to build a desire for what has attracted us. The Bible calls it lust, and Jesus calls that sin, and equates lust with the actual act of adultery. And as if the lusting wasn't bad enough, the desire became so strong that David eventually sent for her. And then the occasion was before him, and he committed the physical act of adultery too. And now Bathsheba is pregnant. So now what? Well, David continues to spiral even further and further away from that straight edge of truth by turning to deception. He tried to cover it all up by calling Uriah home and making several attempts at getting Uriah to spend time with his wife. When all that failed, he resorted to taking Uriah out. And with each follow-up action, David moved further and further away from that straight edge of truth. And that is how it always goes down with sin. David's story illustrates it perfectly for us. We've all been there. Some of us are there right now. We all know how it feels. It's dreadful to be foul and loathsome in the sight of God. Which is why David uses three distinct phrases to describe the solution to transgressions, iniquities, and sins. First, David asks God to blot out my transgressions. Note the possessive use of the word my. David owns this. It's his. He could have said these transgressions, but he knows that he owns them. The words blotting out refers to erasing from a written scroll. So David desires that his defection, his treason, his willful defiance of God be stricken or removed from the record altogether. The record of his transgression must be blotted out for David to stand before a holy God, and he knows it. Second, David asks God to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The word wash is used as in the sense of laundry. The iniquity has produced an unbearable gift that has stained and covered the totality of David. That's why he says, wash me. He doesn't say, wash my garments, because that would have been hypocritical. He's not looking to have his appearance as the king be free of iniquity, so that everyone sees him as a good guy again. No, he knows the iniquity is on him personally. The guilt is within him. He feels it. It's David himself that needs washed, and not just a little rinsing either. He says, wash me thoroughly. His guilt is immense. He wants it all gone. And again, he uses the word my to modify the iniquity. It's David's iniquity, and he owns it. Third, David asked God to cleanse me from my sin. The word cleanse here is used in a ritual sense. In David's day, sin was both to be punished and had to be atoned for by the shedding of an animal's blood. In terms of punishment, David bore a tremendous cost. He lost his son, his wives cheated on him, and his children were a mess. But it also required a sacrifice in order for David to be clean from the foul stench of his sin. And once again, David owns it by repeating the use of the words, cleanse me from my sin. So David is looking for a completely fresh start. He wants the totality of his transgressions blotted out the totality of his iniquity washed thoroughly, 
and the totality of his sin cleansed. So now that we understand the nature of transgressions, iniquity, and sin, and we understand what David was asking with regard to blotting out, washing thoroughly, and cleansing, it's important that we turn to David's appeal. Specifically, David is asking for mercy from God, as you see in the bold white font up there. You see, David knew what he deserved, death, because he pronounced it to Nathan when Nathan told him the story about the two men with the sheep. Most of us have heard this definition of mercy, where it's defined as not getting what we deserve. And that's not a bad starting point. So David is asking God for mercy because he knows that he deserves death and separation from God. But remember, Nathan has already told David he won't be killed over this. So David is already assured of mercy in that sense that we've defined it as not getting what he deserves. And this is where we begin to see a shortcoming of the simple definition of mercy because it leaves out a really important component. David's no doubt grateful. God's going to spare him. But he's looking for something more. David is looking beyond the act of mercy to the one who grants mercy. Notice he says, have mercy on me, O God. You see, God shows mercy because he's merciful. That's his nature. So it's not so much that David is appealing to God's acts of mercy to not kill him, as much as it is that David is appealing to the person of God who is by its very nature merciful. In fact, David appeals to God's mercy according to God's steadfast love. That's who God is. He is steadfast in his love. He desires to love us, so much so that he grants every breath we take. Yet each breath we take is that an extension of God's mercy and of his steadfast love. We too easily forget that. Notice too, David is not appealing to his own works. He isn't saying, hey God, remember I took out that guy Goliath for you. Or remember, I didn't take out Saul when I could have out of respect for you. Come on, it's just one little transgression, my bad. He doesn't do that, does he? No excuses for David. David appeals simply and exclusively to God himself, the one who is the very definition of love, the one who is abundantly merciful. His mercies never cease. They are new every morning, writes the prophet Jeremiah. Only God can blot out, wash thoroughly, and cleanse David, and he knows it. And so David repents before God, and this may very well be the greatest encouragement of all, from Psalm 51, because it demonstrates this truth that repentance is possible. Do you hear that today? This is a huge gift to us. We so often refuse to accept it. It's actually a process for us. We think about it as darkness, but it's a process for us to turn from darkness to light. There's repentance and then there's forgiveness to heal the wounds. And the two of those work together. We're going to see it all throughout Psalm 51. When you have two people together, it could be two friends. It could be a husband and wife. 
It could be a parent and a child. And when one sins against the other, there's distance that's put between them. If there's repentance, that distance can begin to be restored, but only if there's forgiveness. If the person refuses to forgive, then what basically happens is this person is now on the right because they've repented, but this person's in the wrong because they haven't forgiven, and it actually creates more distance because they need to repent now too. You see, when there's repentance and forgiveness working together, we can reunite again. And that's the truth we're going to see all throughout Psalm 51. So yes, we're in this season of confession, contrition, fasting, and all of that can be very, very painful as we confront our sin. But this season is also about repentance, turning from our sin, asking and receiving forgiveness. So ultimately, this is a season of hope, even after what David did. All because... We serve a God who is steadfast in His love and abundant in His mercy. So as we walk our way through Psalm 51 over the next few weeks, it's so important that we remember that this is a prayer. And prayer is the act of speaking out to God from our circumstances in this world. And that's why we encourage you to come on Wednesday to block out the things of this world and spend some time in a special place, abiding in God's presence, asking and seeking and knocking for the Holy Spirit to lead us in repentance, because it's such an important component of the gospel message. Remember John the Baptist who kind of prepared the way for the gospel message? He preached a baptism of repentance. Jesus also said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after Jesus ascends to his Father, The disciples preached, repent, turn back that your sins might be blotted out. And like all things related to the gospel message of good news, repentance is not something we can achieve. It's only granted by God according to his steadfast love and his abundant mercy and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is that first step in leaving from that wide, dark path onto that narrow, well-lighted path. But repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. It's what we do as Christians. We live a life of repentance. And that same Holy Spirit who prompted us to repent when we first placed our faith in Jesus Christ, well, he walks us down that well-lighted, narrow path, daily prompting us to that repentance in our lives. You see, that prayer in Psalm 51 was not just for David or when we royally screw up. Psalm 51 is the daily prayer of a human who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at God's word. When we sit helpless, we feel guilt and shame. Yes, we need God's act of mercy to deal with it all, but even more so, we need God. And this season is about seeking his face. At our Ash Wednesday service this past week, we mentioned the importance of the stone that enclosed Jesus' tomb. I'm going to keep hitting on that over the next couple of weeks and how it represents those things in our lives that prevent us from walking in step with the Lord. Those are the areas that we need to ask, seek, and knock that the Holy Spirit might help us identify and turn from. God is willing and He is able. 
out of his abundant mercy and his steadfast love to forgive us, to roll those stones away in our lives. Ask, seek, and knock. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the amazing gifts of repentance and forgiveness that you provide out of your steadfast love and abundant mercy. Would you convict us of those stones in our lives that we must repent of? Forgive us. Restore us into a right relationship with you by blotting out, washing us thoroughly, and cleansing us of our sins. Lord, would you roll those stones away in our lives that keep us from being in step with you? For Jesus' sake. Amen.